Thanks again, praise team. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. And while you're turning there, I, I heard that it's not only Pastor Tim's birthday today, but Dee Blackmore. Great. Happy birthday to you too, Dee. Pa- Pastor Tim was, was brave enough to mention how old. Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So, uh, but it's great to have you, and great to have your family with us today as well. So. Well, let's, uh, let's turn to Revelation chapter 20, and we're, we're talking about uh, the 11th hour. We're talking about the end times, and, and we're really getting near the end as we're, we're coming to the last few chapters of Revelation. And where we left off uh, in chapter 19, we saw the fall of the, the beast, and we saw that, uh, that Satan's counterfeit trinity is, is actually falling apart. We saw that the Antichrist and the false prophet were... Uh, taken to the lake of fire, and then that left us uh, uh, with Satan, who then was, last week we saw that he was taken to the abyss, or the, the, uh, the bottomless pit, and so if we were going to do uh, some type of a where are they now episode, in a sense, this is, this is kind of what it would look like, right? This, where are they during the millennium, and we would see that the Antichrist and the false prophet are carried into the lake of fire, that's a permanent place. Satan is cast into the abyss which is to be locked up for a thousand years. And so there's this thousand year period of time that we call the millennium, um, where Satan is bound and he is not free on the earth. But we have to ask ourselves too, what, what happens to the, to the rest? What happens to everybody else? And, and that's where Revelation 20 verses four through six uh, t- take us. So let's, let's read those together and then we'll walk through them. Uh, starting in verse four. And I saw thrones... And they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death uh, has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. All right, so so at this point, we know know where the Antichrist is, the the false prophet. We know where Satan uh, Satan himself is. Uh, But here we see, we learn about the rapture believers. We're going to see where the tribulation martyrs are at. And also, uh, we're going to see where the wicked, all those who were wicked, uh, are at during this period of time, the, the tribulation. So let's take a look. Let's look at it a little bit closer and start by, with, with looking at the rapture of believers. Look back at verse 4, verse, uh, verse four, the beginning of the verse. We read this. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Now, to be fair, there are two what I would consider valid interpretations of who this is talking about. Um, and so this is one of those situations where if you disagree with me, that's okay. It's not a big deal. Uh, but there are two valid interpretations. One interpretation of this is that those who sat on the, who were sitting on the thrones in this verse are the raptured believers. Uh, that's that those who are, are the, the believers who were raptured um, prior to the, uh, the outpouring of God's wrath. That they, were, that they are the ones on these thrones on the earth. Others would say... That, uh, that this refers um, to, to the uh, 24 elders that are in heaven. You have the 12 representing the, the, the nation of Israel and 12 representing uh, the, 
the church, and so and we are told that they have that they have thrones, and so there was that there's that argument. I'll tell you what I believe and why, and if you agree with me, that's great. I think the application would end up being the same. Um, but I believe it's the raptured believers, and the reason that I believe that is because the 24 elders have thrones in heaven. Right? And as you read this, this is a promotion. That would kind of be a demotion in my mind to, have, to go from 12, 12 uh, thrones in heaven. But what, where is this taking place right now? This is taking place here on earth. These are thrones. It doesn't mention that there's 24. It just mentions that they have thrones and that they're here on earth. <coughs> Second reason why is if these are not the raptured believers, then, then where are they during the millennium? It, it's not mentioned here. And it mentions every other group of, of people connected to the millennium except for them. So I do believe that uh, we're talking here about the raptured believers. <clears throat> and what we find here is that these raptured believers are given positions as judges. They are, they are the ones that, uh, uh, it says judgment in verse 4, judgment was committed to them. In other words, their job is, is to rule. The word, the word uh, judge in Greek and actually the word judge in Hebrew as well um, uh, typically means more than just being a judge on a court, but it means that that you, you are the ones making the laws and judging them, and you're ruling or reigning um, in, in that sense as well. So, um, so they've got this role of being judges. And not only them, actually, because look, the, look at the second part of, of uh, chapter 20, verse 4. It says, and, and we read this. Then I saw, <coughs> excuse me, then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Uh, so now we have this other group that, and it begins by describing them as those who had been beheaded. Um, so who was that talking about? That's talking about the martyrs during the tribulation. And why were they beheaded? And we, we saw that, uh, why they were martyred. It's right in that same verse. For their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. By the way, I think it's interesting to note here that that is why martyrs for Christ get martyred all the time. Isn't it? I mean, this is, when, when, when you are, are, are a martyr for Christ, it's usually because of, of, of two things, a combination of these two things. One is you, you believe in Jesus Christ, and you actually claim the name of Jesus Christ. And number two, you have a conviction that you follow the word of God. And in, in, in the world, if, in fact, you can claim to believe in Jesus Christ if you want, as long as it's your own version of him. If you don't claim to really follow what the Bible says about Jesus, but you just make, kind of make up your own Jesus in a sense, no, you'll have a lot less enemies in this world. Isn't that true? I mean, if, if, it's, if you turn Jesus into your good luck charm or whatever you wanted to do, the world's okay with that. But when you start saying that you believe in the Jesus of this Bible, now you're going to have some enemies. It's, gonna, it's the nature of things. And, and so uh, they were beheaded, they were killed, or will be killed, because of their witness to Jesus and the word of God, which is all the reason more for us to be, to be sold on the conviction that Jesus is exactly who he said he was, and this book is exactly what it says it is even though that means we're going to make enemies in this world and the world may not like us for it. The world may kill us for it in the future. Um, but this is why the world does that. Because they hate Jesus. In fact, if you, if you keep your finger here, 
we go all the way back to the beginning of Revelation, we remembered why John was, was imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos. Remember in chapter 1, verse 9, and when he introduced himself, he said, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos. Why? Why was he exiled there? For the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He believed in the word of God. He calls this inspired. And he believes in Jesus Christ. So they imprisoned him for that. Well, same with the martyrs in the end times. Same two reasons. And what is their reward for this? What, you know, for being martyred? We go back to, to uh, chapter 20, verse 4. It says that they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now think about that for a moment. The tribulation martyrs, right? Uh, you, you, you look at this. You've got the tribulation martyrs, and now they've got this thousand-year reign. Um, that is a complete turnaround. You see, the tribulation martyrs who were once judged by earthly courts to die are going to have all of that reversed. They will be granted life and the right to judge those who dwell on the earth. I mean, isn't that a complete turnaround? And so the world says, we, because of your testimony of Jesus Christ and because of your adherence to the word of God, we condemn you to death. And that sounds like a, it seems like a dark and, and terrible day, right? But then we, we see that in the end, God is going to reverse that. And he's going to say, those who have died for the testimony of Jesus Christ, those who have died because of their, their adherence to the, to the word, are going to be resurrected. And they're going to be the ones now judging the world. The tables are completely, completely turned in this thousand-year reign. By the way, this is a fulfillment of of prophecies uh, that go all the way back to Isaiah. Listen to this. Uh, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. We read this. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Why? What's he going to do? Verse 4. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So, so he says very clearly here, God is going to take all of the valleys. No, valleys are down here, aren't they? Sorry. He's going to take all the valleys and turn them into mountains. He's going to turn all the, take all the mountains and turn them into valleys. Uh, now, I don't think he's really just talking about a, a new geographical strategy for the planet. I, I, I think it's very clear here what he's saying is, the things that, that before the coming of the Lord are up here and the things that seem so powerful and, the, and, and, the, and those who have worked their way up here, God's going to bring them low. And those who are the mistreated and those who, who are, are struggling because they've been following God and they've been adhering to the Lord and they're going to be persecuted and he's going to bring them up. Does that make sense? Because everyone at one time will be able to, to recognize the, the, the glory of, of, of the Lord. He will be revealed at one time. And so God promised that the Messiah, Christ, would come and balance the scales. And in Revelation 20, he does just that. Those who are unjustly condemned to die will be granted life. Those who are unjustly judged will become judges. And God is completely turning the tables. I don't know about you, but I think there's a lot of comfort in that, isn't there? 
when you go through persecution and when you see your beliefs misrepresented all of the time. You know, Monica and I tease because we, we like to watch murder mysteries and, and we'll watch a murder mystery and all of a sudden they'll introduce a Christian as one of the, one of the people and we're like, oh, we found our murderer. <laughs> we just, you just know it, right? Because, you, because there's this concentrated effort to make Christians look bad, to make Christianity look bad. And that's very low-level persecution. And in the same world that we live in right now, people are dying for their faith. And, uh, and there are very high levels of persecution. But in each case, we see, God's not letting that go. He's got a plan for this. Now, what happens to the rest of the people, though? Let's, let's take a look at verse 5. We read this. Um, so we're talking now about the wicked. What happens to them? Verse 5. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Who's this talking about? Uh, well, the rest of the dead right there are those who died during the tribulation, during what we just read in Revelation chapter 19. They weren't raptured, right? So they were, because they were there during the during the tribulation, so they weren't raptured believers, and they weren't martyrs because they didn't die for their faith. That means they were what? They were the the wicked. They were the they were the the only ones left, the ones who died uh, because of what God had done in the in the tribulation. When God outpoured poured out His wrath, they died, and He outpoured His wrath on the the wicked. And so, what happens to the wicked? They did not live again until the thousand years were finished. Think about that for a moment. They stayed dead. They stayed dead. What did we just read about? The resurrection of the tribulation saints. We read the, the resurrection of the, the raptured saints, the tribulation saints. And then you come to this group of people, it says, and they stayed dead. They're not a part of this first resurrection. They stayed in the grave. The Old Testament word is sheol the grave. It's uh, where they wait for their final judgment. It's kind of like a spiritual death row. And they're waiting there. Just like the, the, the man back in, in Luke 16 that Jesus talked about, the rich man who, 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 uh, who went and woke up in, in the fires of Hades. They'll go there and they'll be waiting their final judgment. Then it goes on to say, it's interesting, so when you see this, the final, the wicked, and they, they, stay, they stay dead. They, they stay dead. And now we have this, where are they all now? And then at the end of this, we find something interesting in verse 5. It says, this is the first resurrection. Now, the, the, this there is referring to the entire passage, not just what was right before it, because what's right before it is where he's saying that the dead didn't resurrect. So it seems a little weird if you just look at verse 5 and say the the, the, those who, the, the rest of the dead did not resurrect. That's the first resurrection. That wouldn't make a whole lot of sense, right? But in the context, who did resurrect? In the context, uh, if you even go to the, uh, uh, to the verses right before, we, we, we had the resurrection of the tribulation martyrs. It's the raptured believers and the, and the martyrs because the wicked weren't raised at all. This is an important concept. Because this is a fulfillment of multiple, multiple references throughout the Bible about the resurrection. So what I'd like to do is keep, your, keep our finger here for a moment. I want to look at a, a, what I call a biblical theology of two resurrections. There's, and it's important that we understand, understand these. So let me take you first to some words of Jesus in Luke 14 where he said this. 
and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was telling the saints that even though on earth you will not be repaid, you will not receive the rewards for your righteousness, but you will receive them when? When there is a resurrection of the just. So there's a specific res resurrection just for the just. The word just means righteous. Those who are, who are righteous. Acts 24, 15 confirms that concept. And it says, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and what? The unjust. So now we see there's also going to be a resurrection for the unjust. So there's a resurrection for the just, for the righteous. There's also a resurrection for the unjust. John, the very writer of the book of Revelation, echoes that in his epistle, uh, and, and in his gospel, excuse me. In John 5, 28 and 29, we read, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. And come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. See how there's two resurrections going on here. One for the just, one for the unjust. And all of this was actually predicted. You can go all, all the way back into the Old Testament. I, I'm just going to choose one text in the Old Testament. But in Daniel 2, we read, At that time Michael, the archangel, shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. What are we talking about? The tribulation, outpouring of God's wrath. And at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake to resurrection, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So we've got these two resurrections. The first resurrection is the resurrection of the just, and it is a resurrection to eternal life. Whereas the second resurrection is a resurrection of the unjust, and it is a resurrection to everlasting shame and contempt. Let me ask you this. Which one is better? I mean, because you're going to be in one of those, right? There's no third options. Which one is better? All right, let's take a vote, all right? Let's do this democratically. How many of you would say the first resurrection is the best one? All right? Like 85% of you? That's a little scary. All right, how many of you would say the second resurrection? Okay, so that means 15% of you are asleep because uh, no one raised their hands. So, so, all right, so there's, there's these two resurrections. Of course it's the best one, right? It's obviously the best one. And it seems obvious, but did you know that the majority of people get that question wrong? The majority of people on this planet get that question wrong. In fact, um, John says it's the best. Look at verse 6. He says, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. John says it's very clear which one's best. It's, if, you, if you choose to be a part of that first resurrection, you are blessed and you are holy. You are set apart 
Um, holiness, he's saying, is the better option. It is, it, is, it is the option to go. In fact, he lists three benefits of the first resurrection, of being a part of that. I just want to walk through those real quickly, what they are. Number one, verse six, it says, blessed and holy is he who, who has part in the first resurrection. And here comes the first benefit. Over such, the second death has no power. So the first benefit, first of three benefits that we find in that verse is the power over the second death. Now think about this. Everybody dies once, right? We are all scheduled to die once. I know there are a couple of exceptions with Elijah being carried up, carried up and we, we can get into some of that later. But, um, but for, the, for mankind, we are scheduled to die how many times? Once, right? Uh, Hebrews 9, 27 says, And it is appointed unto man to die once, but after this, the judgment. And so um, that, that death is, 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 is a sign to us in a sense. Okay, so we, basically we live this earthly life, and that, that could be shorter or longer based on, on, on how long we live on this earth, but it's very, either way, it's very small in comparison to eternity, right? And then we are appointed unto each of us for that to come to an end, and we're going to call this for the, the first death, right? That's our physical death, the, the separation between our body and our soul and spirit, and, and that, is our, that is that first death. According to the verse we just read, uh, or in, in the passage that we just read, it's after that that we are resurrected, but there's a resurrection that takes us to eternal life or a resurrection that takes us to what we call the second death. Now, how many of you would like to skip the second death? Because when I look at that path and I think, okay, the first death, if that first, if the path of that first death leads me to eternal life, well, then now I can handle that. I can handle that first death. Uh, it, it changes my, my perspective of that completely um, because I can avoid the second death. And those two are the eternal or everlasting life and the second death are permanent. And, and this changes everything. I mean, that's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 10 when he said, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. What's he saying? Don't worry about the people. That can only, only make you go through the first death. Don't worry about them. He's belittling first death in a sense. He's saying, death, it's, okay, don't worry too much about that. What you should worry about, he says, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and the body in hell. He's talking about the second death. He's saying, don't worry so much about that first death because everyone's, everyone does it. I mean, that, that sounds like, a, like peer pressure. Hey, everybody's doing it. You've got to give it a try. I'm not saying that. But it is something that if you go through history from Adam till now, uh, there aren't too many people celebrating their thousandth birthday, right? I don't think there are any out there celebrating their thousandth birthday. And uh, the world's been around a lot longer than a thousand years. What, what happened to the rest of them? They died. And, and it, it, we will all go through that. And, 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 and here we're saying this is not necessarily something we have to fear. It, it can be something we, we fear, but it doesn't necessarily have to, to, to be because in reality, you don't really need to fear the first death. Just fear the second death. Isn't that what Jesus is saying? You don't really have to fear that first one if you are prepared for that second one. Why? Because there is a resurrection of the just. Isn't that awesome? 
I mean, when you think about it, is that not awesome? I mean, this is why, this, it changes the way we see everything. In fact, this is why Paul was able to speak of death as lightly as he did in 1 Corinthians 15 when he said, so when this corruptible, when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal, that means it's something that is bound for death, has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Then he, then he breaks out into some poetry here. He says, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? How can he speak that way? Because Paul recognized he was headed for his first death, but he wasn't worried about his first death because he knew there was a resurrection of the just that was coming, and he was going to bypass the second death. Right? And that changed everything for him. What a blessing. What a, what, a, what a motivation to live out our faith boldly without fear of retribution because we understand that. Verse, verse 6 of our text today says, Blessed and holy is he who has a part of the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. Honestly, John could have ended the verse right there and I would be happy. I'd say it's, that's, the, that's the choice I want to make. But he goes on. Look at the second thing he says says, but they shall be, be priests of God and of Christ. I'm going to call this where this, the second uh, benefit of, of the first resurrection is unhindered access and intimacy with God. Let me explain what I mean. When you talk about the priesthood, and when he said that we'll be priests, that, the idea of the priesthood came out of Exodus chapter 32. In Exodus chapter 32, God had already given them the commandments and said, you can be my people and I will be your God. We had this intimate relationship between God and his people. And uh, when Moses went up to get the official copies, um, the two copies of the, uh, of the Ten Commandments, and he's coming down from the mountain, and what were the people of Israel doing? They were breaking all three of the first three commandments at the same time. Right? And they're worshiping this golden calf that they had fashioned uh, with the tool, and they were calling it Elohim. That's the word for the Hebrew word for God. And they're saying, This is Elohim who brought us up out of Egypt. They're attributing what God did to something that they made. It was just a horrible act of, of, of idolatry. And God says that, that I can't be around the sin. And this is going to create a distance between, between God and his people because of that sin. And because of that sin, they lost intimacy and access to God. And then there was a little conversation between God and Moses. And and, uh, and they're having this conversation, and God says, you know what, I think I, I'm just going to wipe them all out and start over with you. And Moses says, no, you can't do that, because all of the other nations have seen your power, how you rescued them. Of course, God knew exactly where he was going with the conversation, but he relates to Moses, right? And, uh, and, and so he ends up creating this system so that people could work their way back to God and having a relationship with God. And so he has this place called the Holy of Holies, which represents the very presence of God, but you can't go there or you'll die. And then he has them walk through this process from, from one, from, they actually started at the east, but they would, they would go through and then there's a sacrifice. And then there was a, a, a laver where they would wash up after that and and, and, and then they could go into the, the, high, the after the sacrifices, the priest would, would take the sins and they would go through the priest, through the high priest, and then the high priest, if they've done everything the way God's asked, could enter into the Holy of Holies and, and have access to God. That God was showing this way to return to this place of intimacy with God. And, um, and guess what? In the millennium, 
that relationship that was once broken by sin is restored. Because we can be priests of God and of Christ. A priest is that, the, the one who has that access to God. Isn't that awesome? To be priests of God. What a, what a blessing that would be to have that intimate relationship, uh, that access to God. You know, I love my conversations with God right now. Anyone else love their prayer life? I love that. But it's still hard because there's a sense of distance right now because I can talk to him verbally, but I don't necessarily hear him verbally. Anyone else hear verbally? Because I, I, I have a little, uh, I have a friend I'd like you to talk to. No, I'm just kidding. No, but I, but, I, but I don't hear him verbally. But you know what? Um, he's given me enough. And it gets, whets my appetite for my relationship with God. I can't wait till the day when I can actually go up to him. And he can talk to all of us at once. I mean, he's on the person. Go up to him and, and, and see him and talk to him. Wouldn't that be cool? Say, God, where am I going wrong today? I, I, help me out today. Or Dad, uh, Dad, we call him Abba in, in, in uh, the Hebrew word Abba. It's like, Daddy, Daddy, what's going on today? Can you help me? Dad, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling. What an intimacy and access to, to God that we see in the millennium. That relationship is restored. There's a third blessing that we find in verse 6 as well. Not only will we be priests of God and of Christ, it says, and, and shall reign with him a thousand years. I, I, put it, I put it this way, that the third blessing is a divine purpose. And let me explain that for a moment and what I, what I mean by that. In this context, it says that we will be, will be co, co-participants in his reigning. Uh, the idea is that we will become instruments of God's justice, God doing something, and, he, and, and, then, and then letting us have part in that. That's an interesting concept when you think about it. The idea that we'll be participating in divine tasks. Uh, God is responsible for ruling over and administrating justice. And he is going to allow us participation in that. He's going to give us a purpose in that. That is an amazing thing. It, it's, it's interesting to think that we, we could have access to or, or we could have participation in a divine task. Where God says, here, watch me do this. And he does something. He, he shows us how to do it and says, now I want you to go do that. We haven't really had that since Genesis 3. Right? We really haven't had that kind of a relationship. Because remember in, in Genesis 1, God looks at the, the universe and says, it's empty, it's lifeless, it's void. It, it's, uh, uh, in Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, What? God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. It was unformed, it was unfilled. Tohu and bohu in Hebrew. Unformed, unfilled. And so God spends time saying, I'm going to remedy that. And he starts forming things, and he, he, creates, he creates the world. He creates the firmament. He creates the, those things. He spends three days creating things. And then, then he takes three more days, and he starts filling them with life. And he, fills the, he starts filling these things with life. And, and, and by, the time, you know, by the time he's done, he's got this beautiful creation. He's got the Garden of Eden. It's this beautiful thing. And, and then he creates man, the pinnacle of his creation. And do you remember what he says to man? One of the first things he says to, to man, he gives him a great commission. The great commission of the Old Testament, it's called. 
And and he says this, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What is he saying to mankind? He's saying, I started a process, now I want you to go do it. I created life, now I want you to go do things. It was unformed, it was was unformed, and, and I want you to go be fruitful, just like he was fruitful and he was productive, he created. It was empty of life. And he says, now I want you to multiply. I want you to start filling the land with, with, uh, with it. It was empty. So he says, I, I want you to fill it. It was in chaos. I want you to have dominion over it. See what was going on? God was saying, I have this, this divine task, and I want you to participate in it. And mankind had that. How well did that go, by the way? Yeah, Genesis 3. Mankind said, well, I think we can do some things our own way. And all of a sudden, went right back to chaos. In fact, what you find in the next, chap- next ten chapters of Genesis, you find four stories showing how they failed in all four points of that Great Commission. Mankind failed. One story for each one of those points takes us through Genesis 11. Mankind failed to live up to that purpose. But... Revelation 20, God once again entrusts us with a task that belongs to him. And we become instruments of God's justice. You get the feeling like God is grooming us for something actually important? I'm not saying that we don't have important tasks right now. I'm not saying that. But I think the things that we think are important pale in comparison to some of the things he has in store for us. And what is he grooming us for? I don't know, but we do have a clue. If I had to keep, keep a finger in Revelation 20, I want to read something from Romans. You might remember if you were here when we were studying the book of Romans, but in chapter 8, we, we read this. Let me, whoops, I'm putting, that's what I'm doing. I'm pushing the wrong button. Sorry. I went backwards. Here we go, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. What was Paul saying? The sufferings we're going through right now pale in comparison to the glory of what God has in store for us. What does that mean? Verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Think about that for a moment. The earnest expectation of the creation. The, the entire creation is expecting something. It's waiting for something. What is that? Sons of God. Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, emptiness. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Think about that. We live in a universe that is corrupted by sin, right? We live in a universe corrupted by sin, right? All right, there we go. There, you're right. <laughs> and, and it's corrupted by sin. And yet we have a God who creates life. But if you were to look at the entire universe, what do you find? It's empty and lifeless 
In fact, if you were to, to, to even say, as far as we can understand, as far as we can even grasp of how big uh, the universe is, if we were to say that, that, that this room, this whole room represented that, how big would the earth be? It would be about the size of an atom somewhere floating around. And yet, that's the only spot in the universe that has life? When we have this life-creating God? I, and, and, he, and what is he saying here? He's saying, Creation is groaning. It is, wait, it, is, it, is, it is futile. That means empty. And by the way, you don't have to go very far away from planet Earth and what happens to you? You die. Right? You don't have to get that far away. Uh, long before you get to the closest planet, you would die. And, and we have this. And, and creation is, is, is empty. But according to this verse... It says, in fact, let me go back yeah, right here. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. It's the, all, all of that empty, something's going to change. And you know, what's gonna, you know what it's waiting for? Us. It, am, I read, am I reading that right? That's what it says. Waiting for the children of God, the sons of God. Now, what exactly is that going to be like? I have no idea. I don't know what that's going to look like, um, um, but I do know that it's going to be awesome. Paul talked about that a little bit in 1 Corinthians when he says, But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. I have no idea. I'll tell you this, though. The biblical view of heaven is not floating on a cloud playing a harp. That would get boring very quickly. But God is saying, I have divine tasks for you. Now, let me take back to what we're talking about in Revelation 20. In Revelation 20, there's this thousand-year period where he's saying, I'm going to start giving you some of these divine tasks. He is grooming us for something that goes way, way beyond our, our thoughts and imagination. Stuff that can't even, we can't comprehend it now. Our eyes can't see it. Our ears can't hear it. Our hearts cannot grasp it because God has big things going on. And he hasn't revealed them all yet. What exactly is that going to be like? I don't know. But it's going to be awesome. Anyone with me on that? When I think of application. There's really only two choices. You can choose God now in this life. And that means if you choose God right now, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. You're, you will lose friends over it. You, you will. But if you choose God now then you will be looking for the resurrection to life. You, 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 it'll change the way you live your life. You get bad news? It's okay, I'm going to the resurrection of life. No matter what, you, you, you will, and when you get there, when, you'll have access to God, intimacy with God. You'll have a divine purpose. You'll be reigning in the millennium. Or, you can choose yourself right now. And you put yourself on a pedestal and you, do every, you make choices to make yourself more comfortable here on earth. In fact, I'm convinced that the one thing that is hurting the church in America more than anything is our worship of comfort. We don't realize how comfortable we are and we're not willing to give up any of that comfort to actually do what God's called us to do. We've got to change that. But if we can choose self now and it's comfortable... But what resurrection are we looking forward to then? We're looking forward to the resurrection to everlasting shame and contempt. 
Instead of intimacy with God, we'll have an eternal separation from God. Instead of a divine purpose, we'll have meaninglessness. And, and so I, I say this all today to, to really bring you to a point of a simple, a simple choice. I think it's a simple one, but it's not an easy one. Does that make sense? It's simple in the sense that it's not complicated. What is the best way to go? The best way to go is to choose God right now. Serve him, sacrifice, be persecuted if you need to. Choose God now because we have something great to look forward to. We have that resurrection to look forward to. We have a millennium, a thousand years, which I can't even grasp a thousand years. For me, it's a big deal when we celebrate 43 years or, or to celebrate these 50 years, something like that. We celebrate those milestones, a thousand years. And guess what? That's just our training for what God has in store for us that goes beyond what we could think or hear or see or beyond what our hearts can understand. And we start to see God undoing some of the corruption in the universe. I don't know what that looks like, but I'm going to be a part of it. Or you could choose yourself now and say, I want to avoid the pains of, of self-sacrifice. I follow Jesus. He gave his life for other people. Do I really want to do that? Jesus, sometimes he said, if you follow me, you might have some nights where you won't have a place to lay your head. One of my favorite pastors, his name is Rosindo, and, and to hear him tell his stories, he's a, he's a Quechua Indian, and, and he, he would, he'd worked his way up to where he was making good money. He was considered the top martial artist in the country of Ecuador, and, and, and he gave it all up to become a preacher, and he has over 80 congregations in the mountains that he has to get to by foot. And he's telling stories of, of self-sacrifice, how difficult it is. And, and he'll go, sometimes days, they usually pay him in, in rabbit or kui. Rabbit, I can, stand, I can see eating rabbit. Kui, if you've ever eaten it, just don't. Right? <laughs> and, and so they pay him in those things. And so sometimes he'll go without pay. And, and he's got stories. I could tell you some stories that, that might make your stomach turn a little bit. But I can't wait to see what God's going to do with him in eternity. Right? We can choose God now, which means this life of sacrifice, this life of persecution, and all of those things, and look forward to an, a glorious eternity. Or we can choose ourselves now. Maybe make things a little bit more comfortable in this little piece of life that we have left.